0: A very special guest, and some of you already are familiar with him. His name is uh, Craig Esvelt, and uh, he is a, a preaching pastor down in the Renton area. And we're very blessed, as uh, many of you know, uh, Barry and Margaret, and uh, they know him very personally and always have spoken very highly of him. He was their shepherd, a very faithful one who has uh, divided the word faithfully for many years. And you can read a little bit about his bio down there. He is um, uh, well-trained, and we're looking forward to what he has. So let's give him a warm welcome as he comes to open the Word of God. It's very good to be here. I've heard a lot of good things about your church. Your pastor from Barry and Margaret, good friends of mine. I'm going to just move this back a little. I've been looking forward to being here uh, for quite some time. I know some of the other people here as well. So good morning to you. I've been uh, living in this area now for about 38 years, and I'm a native Washingtonian, which is very hard to find these days. But um, I want to share just a little bit about myself as I begin uh, this message today. And I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul, as he was writing to the Romans, said. He said, the Apostle Paul... He said, I'm an apostle of God, set apart for the gospel of God. Some translations say separated. That's an interesting word, set apart or separated. It actually comes from two Greek words. <clears throat> one word means from or off. It's God. the word is aphorizo. Ap one of the words off means from or, or away from, the other one means horizo. It's the word we get horizon from. And if you were to make that word a literal translation, it would say off horizoned. So Paul is saying that he's an apostle and he's been off-horizoned. Isn't that kind of an interesting concept? And when you think about it, it's very accurate. Here's Paul, the apostle, raised, you might say, with one horizon as he looked around, the center of which was probably the law. And his life was all about the law, all about the Jewish culture. And he, of course, uh, defended that with vigor and he persecuted the church. But the Apostle Paul had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And all of a sudden, he was off-horizoned. He was taken from one circle of life that he had lived, and he was placed in a different circle. The center of that circle was the Lord Jesus Christ. And it changed his life forever. And the reason I bring that up is because you and I have probably looked upon different horizons. I've been out on the... uh, Ocean fishing, where you look around 360 degrees and it's flat. It's pretty boring. Probably the most impressive horizon I ever saw as a young man was hiking, backpacking in the Wallowa Mountains in northeastern Oregon. And I'd been struggling with this issue of Christianity. I was a young man. I'd been very skeptical. I used to enjoy arguing with believers because they didn't seem to have too many good answers for me. And I went on this backpack trip shortly after I was married. The guy I went with, a good friend of mine, was a Christian. And I began arguing with him on the way up into the Wallawas. And by this time, I had already heard the gospel. I had already been exposed to biblical prophecy and some of the fulfilled prophecies that had really jarred me. And much to my surprise and a certain amount of my chagrin, I was beginning to believe. And as I went up on that mountain, I played the devil's advocate with John. And I kept throwing these questions at him, and he had some pretty good answers for me. John finally turned and looked at me, and he said, I really feel sorry for you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you're going to go your whole life trying to find all the answers. He says, you're never going to find all the answers. If you had all the answers, you'd be God. He says, you're going to be miserable. And I didn't have a snappy comeback for him. And you know something? We camped at the base of the highest mountain, the Mountain, Mountains, called the Matterhorn about the second day we were there, John and I climbed the Matterhorn, and I got up to the top of that mountain, the highest peak in the Valais. and 360 degrees, I looked around, all I could see were mountain peaks. It was incredible. The scenery was just staggering. And that was a special day for me too, spiritually, because I became off horizon that day in a spiritual sense. Because that evening, I gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and my life has never been the same since. And I want you to think about that this morning because I'm going to be preaching about the fact that we are made for mountains. The Christian life is not supposed to be a life of ease, it's not supposed to be flat. When you talk to people and they say, Well, I want to go hiking, I want to go see incredible scenery. Where are you going? They're probably not going to say, We're going to go to Kansas, you know, where it's flat. No, they don't say that, do they? They want to go to the mountains. And the mountains are up and down and up and down. And you and I, if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, are made for the mountains. We're made to become off-horizon, to change from one condition to another. We're never meant to wallow in the valleys of despair, but always to keep climbing and moving. And with that in mind, I want you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. I'm going to be dealing with two different scriptures today primarily. The first one is in 2 Samuel, and I'm going to read from chapter 22 here. 2 Samuel chapter 22. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I do want to read the first few verses, then I'm going to jump over to a few more verses. Chapter 22, it says, And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. It's a good place to be. He's fought his battles. He's won. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. Now, let's skip over to verse 31. He says, as for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock besides our God? God is my strong fortress, and He sets the blameless in His way. And here's a key verse He makes my feet like hinds' feet, hind being a female deer. He makes my feet like hinds' feet and sets me on high places. David is comparing himself to a deer, essentially. Now, again, this is a time in David's life where he has won his battles. He's fled from Saul for seven years or so. Had to deal with that. He's gone out. He's conquered all of these uh, countries around him. And now he is in a position of authority. And he says, God has set me on high places. David was used to high places. During those years that he was fleeing from Saul... He was in the mountains. Let me just read this to you from 1 Samuel. This is one of several scriptures that deal with this. It says, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. The crags of the wild goats. David fled to the mountains to get away from Saul. And Saul continued to pursue him. And as David would flee to the mountains from time to time, I'm sure he had observed deer, hinds, female deer. And as David and his men would have to struggle over the rocks in the heat, he would look ahead, maybe he would see this deer, and this deer would just effortlessly bounding up, you know, without any effort at all, just jumping from rock to rock. And I'm sure David looked at that and said, oh, to have feet like that the feet of a deer. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And he had observed these deer as he had struggled over the rocks, and yet David now finds himself in a place of great victory. David wrote this letter after he had struggled, and it says, God has set me on high places. The word set there could be stand. I have been made to stand in high places. It's like an athlete on a podium. The athlete has run the race. He has fought his fight. He has struggled and now he's standing on a podium. And he's reaping the rewards, as it were. And so God set David. In fact, this is an interesting word because in the, uh, in the Hebrew tense here, the hyphil tense, it is causative. It says God caused him to stand. God made David stand on these high places. It's the idea of possessing country, possessing different terrain. And so he pictures himself in high places. Now, high places were often, as you probably know, places of worship. Uh, They were symbolic, and sometimes symbolic of the habitation of God. Let me read this to you from the book of Amos. It says, "...he who forms mountains and creates the wind, and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness, and treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name." Then in the book of Micah, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread the high places of the earth. High places had significance in the Bible. You think about that. Abraham's sacrifice was to sacrifice Isaac on a mountain, on a high place. Moses received the law, Mount Sinai, a high place. Uh, The transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension all occurred on mountains, on high places. Now, God has said, God has made you and I, if we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, to stand on high places. That's when we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say this. This is positional. This isn't always practical. If you understand what I mean, let me just read to you in the book of Ephesians here, where it mentions the fact that we are seated with Christ. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a positional place. But you and I haven't in a practical sense attained it yet. That will come someday in heaven after we have fought the fight, after we have run our race. We will enjoy, as it were, a high place. Right now, it's positional. The book of Romans says in chapter 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We have been seated with Christ. But we still struggle. We've been seated to be in a place, a high place with Jesus. And someday we will be with him in glory, and we'll experience that in a very practical sense. But not only has the Lord Jesus brought us into a favored position with God, but you and I, as followers of Christ, are given special grace to cope with difficult situations. To rise above hardships. Now with that in mind, I want you to turn back to the little book of Habakkuk, if for no other reason than to find it. Habakkuk. You've, got to, you've got to go past a few of the other uh, minor prophets before you get there. Just past Micah, a little ways there, the book of Habakkuk. Now let me just share with you the background before I read the verse in Habakkuk, which is amazingly similar to the words of David that we just read. You know, before I say that, let me just read to you a scripture from Isaiah. God causes us to stand or to be set in high places. And what you're going to find out in Habakkuk, He also makes us walk in high places. What does that mean? Let me read to you a very familiar verse, I think, from Isaiah 40. We're talking about the Lord. It says, He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength, they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. You know, it's wonderful to soar on wings like eagles. You and I might have mountaintop experiences sometime and run and not, uh, run and not grow weary. That'd be nice too, wouldn't it? But it says that it will walk and not faint. That's something entirely different. There's times when you want to faint. There's times when the struggle seems like it's just... Too much. And yet it says the Lord is giving you and I grace and strength to walk and not faint. So the second point I want to make here is we are not only made to stand or to be set in high places, positionally, someday practically, but we're made to walk on high places. So let's look at Habakkuk here, chapter 3. And again, I'm not going to read this whole chapter. I'm just going to read a few verses here. Now, let me. I have to give you a little bit of background here. What's happening in this book, in Habakkuk's life, about 600 B.C., is the fact that Habakkuk's been complaining about the wickedness of his people, the Jews. Chapter 1, he's saying, God, when are you, you going to come? When are you going to punish this people? When are you going to straighten us out, so to speak? He's praying that God would discipline his people because they had just slipped away morally. They have turned away from the worship of God. <clears throat> and so God answers Habakkuk and says, I'm going to do it. And this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring the Babylonians in and they are going to wreak havoc and they're going to conquer you and take you away and all that. And Habakkuk is aghast because he's thinking, you know, as bad as we are, the Babylonians are a whole lot worse. They're a whole lot more wicked and they're brutal and all that. And so now Habakkuk is saying, whoa, this is is too much. And he's having to deal with this whole issue. God's saying, this is how I'm going to discipline my people. So we come into chapter 3 now. Habakkuk realizes that this horrific judgment is coming upon his people. And this is what he says now, as you look at verse 16, the end of Habakkuk's letter here. He said, I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait patiently for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. And then here is this sublime soliloquy. Now you think about his position here. This is amazing what he says. He says, Though the fig trees should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive trees should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stall. In other words, everything is just going to be laid waste. He says, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Now look at verse 19. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like like hind's feet, and makes me walk on my high places. Almost the exact words of the King David. This is probably one of the greatest statements of raw faith in the Bible. As Habakkuk is looking at this impending doom, as it were, it's horrible. What's coming? The anticipation. And yet he says, He's made my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to walk, to keep on moving, though all of this is going to be happening around me. And again, in the Hebrew, it's caused him. God has made him to walk. It refers to a change from one condition to another. It's the same, essentially, statement or word where it says elsewhere in the Bible that God has made the sea into dry land. Habakkuk's saying, He has made my feet like the feet of a deer. I'm going to be enabled to walk through what's coming. Now look at the difference in circumstances between these two men. Here you have David. David is standing pretty much at ease. Like on a podium, after he's had his wars, he's looking back over all of his wars and back over his victories, and here is Habakkuk looking forward to something horrible that's coming. It's incredibly different when you think about it. What about the enablement? David was made to stand on high places of success like a victor's podium. Habakkuk is going to be given the grace to walk through great difficulty. One is a statement of fact. This is a statement of great faith. You see, it's one thing to stand victorious after successful conquests. It's quite another thing to walk victoriously in the anticipation of disaster and suffering that's coming. Have you ever been there? About three years ago, my wife began having dizzy spells. And she went to the doctor, and the doctor said he thought it was vertigo. So we gave her some kind of medication for that, but things continued to get worse, and her dizziness, and pretty soon it turned into some areas of confusion. She was going to drive just 10 minutes away to see my daughter's house, and she couldn't remember how to get there. And then she began losing some ability with her, particularly her left hand and all that. And finally, under the doctor's recommendation, we took her down to the hospital on Mother's Day of uh, May of 2012. And that's when we found that she had... uh, Two malignant tumors in her brain, one the size of a lemon, about the other one the size of a walnut. And they said there's really no cure. They said if this is untreated, she'll probably live for another maybe two, three months. They said we can do surgery and we can remove much of the tumor called debulking the tumor. And with chemo and with uh, radiation and some other drugs, might be able to extend her life out a year, maybe even more. So we decided to do that. And, um, but all of a sudden, there's a new scenario. We are looking at impending disaster. How do you deal with that? And she had the uh, surgery and uh, went through the surgery. She came and actually spent a few weeks down here at a her rehab center in Issaquah and brought her home. And she was able to regain a lot of her strength. For a while, she actually was able to walk again. Um, but gradually, those abilities went away. And pretty soon I was having to pretty much, you know, carry her, walk with her to get her around and all that. And she began diminishing in her mind a little bit. And we were looking forward to a horizon that wasn't particularly good. And um, not only that, we're dealing with my son at the time, which is an issue I'm going to get into just a little bit. But I was wondering, how in the world am I going to handle all of this? And it's like the Lord... Had promised that he would enable us to walk through difficult times. And so my daughters and I had prayed that if it was the Lord's will not to heal her, because obviously we prayed for healing, okay, but if it was God's purpose that he would not heal her, that he would somehow take her quickly so that we wouldn't have to watch her just continue to diminish physically and mentally. And the Lord answered that prayer. And in October of uh, 2012, one morning she got up and she said she wasn't feeling well. And two and a half hours later, she was gone. And she developed a pulmonary embolism, a blood clot in her lungs, which took her quite uh, quickly, took her to the hospital, and, um, and she was gone. So sometimes events happen that give us a different scenario. Things that you and I haven't anticipated. Some of you have probably been in situations like that. Some of you will be. Because none of us comes through this fallen, cursed world unscathed. Now, what is Habakkuk saying here? I think he's saying we're made for the mountains. We're made to keep climbing. But you know, climbing is hard work. <laughs> Have you ever gotten to the point of your Christian life where you're saying, this is really tough. I really don't know if I want to go on. I mean, you look at how far you got to go, and the struggle, and the effort, and the work and you're just tempted to give up. There's times when climbers stumble. There's times when Christians fall into sin, and they stumble and they fall on the climb. What do you do in that case? You get up and you keep going. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Get up and keep going. Eventually, you'll make it to the top. There's other times when a climber loses sight of the goal, the sight of the peak. You know, we should always try to keep that in mind. Pressing on. What does Paul say? You know, forgetting what is behind, pressing on toward his ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for the high calling of Christ, you know, in Christ Jesus. Hebrews says, throw off everything that entangles, you know, the sin, and run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning and shame. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not lose heart. So we we fix our eyes on the goal and we keep climbing, but sometimes the peak becomes a little obscured, Clouds. Something else gets in the way. And all of a sudden, I don't know if you've ever done this, as you're climbing this mountain, you you just crest a ridge and then all of a sudden it drops off and you realize there's a valley between you and the peak. (laughs) And now you're losing ground. You're thinking I've gained this ground. I'm already tired, now I got to go down. I've got to make up this ground again. And you're looking at a valley, and God doesn't want us to stay in the valleys. What do you do? You keep going. Eventually, you're going to meet the peak. You're going to reach the peak, but you might have to go through a valley or two. In August of two thousand and three. Actually, I should back up. It's about this time 12 years ago. My wife and I had one of the best weekends, weeks of our lives. We were able to go down to a um, pastor's conference, a shepherd's conference in John MacArthur's church for about a week. And uh, here's some wonderful teaching. And one of the highlights of that week was we got to drive over to Riverside where our son Seth was attending California Baptist University. And we got to see the campus. And Mary had seen it. i had already seen it. But Seth took us around showed us so forth. Had a great time. Well, later that summer, um, he came home for a while. He decided to stay and go to summer school down there, but he was home for his cousin's wedding, and then I took him to the airport. Five days later, we got a call Saturday evening, about 10 o'clock. Mary and I had already gone to bed. The phone rang. I heard my daughter talking on the phone kind of excitedly. She came down, she said, Dad, Nicole's on the phone. Nicole was a girlfriend my son knew down at the campus, and she said they'd been in a, a car accident, but everybody's breathing. Well, that's good news. You know. And uh, we kept on the phone, um, and pretty soon we talked to uh, an officer. He said, well, your son's been in this accident. He's pretty well banged up. He's got a broken collarbone, broken hip, you know, some, some other things, and, um, you know, not, not good. And so we stayed by the phone, and finally we got to talk to the emergency room doctor. And he was very hesitant to tell us because of um, all these privacy laws and all that, you know, can't tell me exactly what's wrong. And I said, look, this is my son we're talking about here. And he finally said, your son's in really bad shape. And uh, you better get down here to the hospital right away. I said, we're up in Seattle. He said, well, if I were you, I'd catch the very first flight. And then we knew it was very serious. And uh, actually, before we left for the airport, we talked to the emergency room nurse. And he said, your your son... He's, he's been hanging by a thread while he was down in the um, emergency room. Maybe he's hanging by two threads now. So we got on the plane. First plane we could get on. Only two seats available. First class. And we flew down. Of course, we're out of contact that whole time. And incidentally, when we got the news, I called two people. I called my brother, younger brother, who's a Christian, let him know so the family could know. And I called Barry. Because um, Barry was an elder in my church at that time. And Barry and I had spent years um, praying together and whatnot, and I knew that Barry would pray, and that Barry would share the news with the congregation the next day. So we get down there, we flew down there and um, rented a car, went to Riverside to the hospital, and all this time I had no idea whether he had lived or died at the night, and in fact the doctor had assumed that he would die, because he was uh, head injury, bruised heart, lungs, just pretty much crushed all of his ribs. So, the doctor, as we found out later, had not expected him to live at all. And the doctor considered his survival a miracle. But we got there, we got to the hospital, we went up to check in and uh, talked to a security guy. We had to get him our ID and all that. And I was waiting for him to say, either you need to go with me down to the morgue or up to ICU. And he stuck out his hand, big black African American guy, he said, he said, You must be Seth's parents. He said, I've been praying for him all night. You know, he's up in ICU. What a relief. He wasn't in the morgue. And we got up to see her son. Of course, he's got tubes everywhere. And um, the next several weeks were pretty rough. And there were several times when he could have died because of blood clots and and, uh, kidney shutting down and a thing they had to put down inside of his brain to monitor it. And all these things are happening. He could have died. He didn't die. In five weeks, we were finally able, he was stable enough to fly him up to Seattle. And originally, we hoped to get him up here in Bellevue to um, Overlake. They looked at his injuries and we can't handle somebody with that degree of injuries. They said, he needs to go to Harborview. Tried to get him into Harborview. Harborview was full. They said, we don't have any rooms. They said, maybe we can set something up out in the hallway. <laughs> I thought, no. And finally, he wound up at Swedish Hospital. And he was at Swedish Hospital for five weeks. And that's when they were finally able to do an MRI on... Him and they discovered the extent of his brain injury. And they said, your son will never come back the way you knew him. They said he will either remain in a coma, which he was at at the time, after five weeks, or the best you can probably hope for is he will get up to some vegetative state. And um, they recommended at that time, they said, you know, because he's got a tracheoma- tracheometry, he's breathing through a trache tube, that he will likely get uh, pneumonia, and um, when he gets pneumonia, we would recommend that you just not treat it because of the scenario. They said otherwise he's going to be this way for the rest of his life and you're going to have this burden and so forth. And in others, let him die. And you know, we didn't really feel like that was God's plan. First of all, we still were holding on hope that maybe God would heal him. But in any event, we didn't want to play God. So we decided to let him live and that, that did happen and he was finally moved down to a nursing facility in Puyallup. and he was there for two years gradually came up from what had originally been diagnosed as brain dead to vegetative to where he is now at, which is um, called minimally conscious. And so Seth can really he can move he can move a little bit his um, right hand and his right foot. Uh, he was injured primarily on the right side of his right side of his brain, which controls the left side of your body. So his left side is pretty much paralyzed. right side, he can move a little bit. He understands what's going on around him, as far as we know. I can um, ask him to blink his eyes, and he will most of the time, not consistently enough to communicate. Um, I can say something humorous around him with a straight face, and he'll smile. So we've known that he can pretty much understand what's going on, but he's trapped in a body, I suppose much like a person with a stroke and he can't respond, and he's been that way now for almost 12 years. So that's been very difficult. And the question is this, when you encounter situations like this, it is so normal to ask the question, why? You know, when somebody's injured like that, I don't know about you, but our first response was, well, he's either going to live or he's going to die. And the night we heard about the accident, we got down as a family, prayed, Lord, this is your time to take him, you know, take him home. Um, or the other option would be that he would come out of it. And you never think about that third horrible scenario where he doesn't come out, but he doesn't die. And so all of these years, he's been in a kind of a limbo. And it's so easy to question why. And I've heard preachers talk about that. They say, we shouldn't ask why. Just on faith, trust God. Because God's probably not going to tell you why anyway. It's true. Okay? Now, sometimes God will answer. You know, you read through the book of Job, and Job is, why, why this and why that? God must have eventually told him because we have the book of Job, and we understand why. David asked questions of why. Habakkuk asked questions of why. Jeremiah asked why. Jesus asked the question, why, why have you forsaken me on the cross? So it's not unspiritual to ask why. But chances are, God's not necessarily going to answer you. Now, there are some answers. Let me just read answer Here's one answer that the Lord gave me, which you're probably familiar with, over in 1 Peter chapter 1. It says to the people he's writing to, Christians, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, literally in the Greek, the word day, it is necessary that you've been distressed by various trials. Why? Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why do we go through valleys? To strengthen our faith, to test our mettle, to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one reason. I can see now some reasons why this may have happened. I have a son-in-law. When Seth was brought up to Swedish Hospital, put pictures of the family up on the wall there. He's in a coma, of course. Now we put pictures, you know, in case he wakes up. He gets to see pictures of mom and dad, grandpa and grandma, and his sisters and all that. And uh, you have to keep that in mind because the second night we were there, we're getting ready to go home. We'd been there all day long, and um, I was looking over all of the nurses that were logging in. Okay. I'm wondering, who's going to be taking care of my son? He's in such a delicate condition still, you know. And here's all these, these gals, these nurses, and all of a sudden, hmm, hmm, here's this big guy. All these cute little nurses and this big guy with a beard and a ponytail. And I thought to myself, man, if he just had some tattoos, he'd look like a felon, you know. And I remember praying. I'm a pastor. It's not a very spiritual prayer. I remember actually praying, God, please don't let that man be sis nurse tonight? God has a sense of humor. I know what God was thinking. Not only is he going to be his nurse tonight, but in a year and a half, he's going to be your son-in-law. But you know something? (laughs) Matthew became our favorite nurse. He had spent years at Harborview working with head trauma patients. He knew more than any nurse on the floor how to deal with sex condition. And he had such a sweet, compassionate spirit about him. And the first night he was there, as he told us later, he looked at the pictures on the wall, and he saw my daughter's picture. And he's talking to Seth, and Seth's in a coma. Okay? But, you know, Seth, is that your sister? She sure is cute. Is she married? You know? And gradually, Matthew and my daughter began to have an attraction to one another. And this, this really bothered me at first, because he... Um, until we got to know him a little bit better, but see matthew had he had a past. he was quite a bit older than Holly. he had gone the whole route growing up, turning away from God, drugs, sex, alcohol, the whole deal. You know, I, I tell people Matthew had been around the block a few times. Holly had never even backed out of the garage. <laughs> so red flags are going up all the time, and i and, and, and Holly's asking me, Dad, you know, what do you think about this? And help me out with this. And blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking, I was really getting frustrated with God at the time. He said, Lord, I've got enough on my plate right now. I don't need to have to deal with this too. You know? But it was amazing the, the, the things that God had put together. Matthew had been in Africa the year before, struggling with this issue of faith. He had started reading the Bible, uh, but there's no Christians over there to talk to. Last week he was there, he'd walked down in the boon, he sat under an acacia tree, and he, he'd, he'd given his life as much as he knew to God, and he prayed that God would give him a helpmate. He never thought he'd be married, but he actually prayed for a helpmate. So he comes back to America, comes back to Seattle to visit his parents, decides to work at Swedish so he can be put through school, meets our daughter, and, and I, I could go into much more. But it, it was still difficult for me, and um, I remember the first time I got together with him man to man. I want to find out what's going on here. At a Sherry's restaurant, I looked across the table at him, and I said, you know, since the time Holly was a little baby girl, we have prayed for God's man, prayed for the husband that she would have someday. I said, you're not exactly what we had in mind. (laughs) He looked at me and smiled. But I can see the hand of God now in all of that. I couldn't see the hand of God then. Sometimes it's obscured, and we don't know what. What do you do when you don't have the answers? You continue to trust. You continue to walk in a scenario that's not looking very favorable. And I've gotten to think about one thing I've thought about. What if God answered my questions about Seth, about Mary? These why questions. What if God were to say to you and say to me, Okay, I'm going to tell you why. Here's the panorama. Now, first of all, I've got to mess with your brain a little bit, because right now, for you to try to understand what I'm doing would be like you, you know, trying to explain quantum physics to your three-year-old grandson or whatever. But I'm going to show you the panorama, Craig. This is all the, uh, the workings and the weaving that I've done up to this point. This is what I'm doing now. And this is how it's all going to work together. And say I look at that, and I understand. I say, okay, I can see why. And I'm satisfied to an extent. What have I gained? Some degree of satisfaction. What have I lost? What have you lost? Faith. You don't need faith anymore. You see it, right? What is the one thing that you cannot do and please God without? Faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Let me read this to you. It's a quote from Oswald Chambers. You probably know um, um, my utmost first highest. He says, Faith by its very nature must be tried. And the real trial of faith is not that we find it difficult to trust God, but that God's character has to be cleared in our own minds. Faith in its actual working out has to go through spells of unsyllabled isolation. Never confound the trial of faith with the ordinary discipline of life. Much that we call the trial of faith is the inevitable result of being alive. Faith in the Bible is faith in God against everything that contradicts Him. I will remain true to God's character, whatever He may do. Though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. This is the most sublime utterance of faith in the whole of the Bible. We have to learn to interpret the mysteries of life in the light of our knowledge of God. Unless we can look the darkest, blackest, Fact full in the face without damaging God's character, we do not yet know him. Elizabeth Elliot said, Faith's most severe tests comes not when we see nothing, but when we see a stunning array of evidence that seems to prove our faith vain. C.S. Lewis commented on this whole thing. He said, Someday when you and I step into heaven, and we do see, he said the first words out of our mouth are going to be, Of course. Of course. What do we do? Keep going. You keep climbing. There's times when a climber encounters plateaus. Well, that's wonderful. Little break, little rest. But plateaus are meant to rest and then to move on. They're not meant to camp on. They're not meant to stay on. Let me just read you a quote from Charles Stanley. He said, in every church there are those who start out. Every church has those who start out then reach a certain plateau and settle down. They never say so, but their lives prove this conclusion. This may not be as high as others are going, but it's as high as I'm willing to go. If you stop along the way, you'll never enjoy the scenery that you could have enjoyed. And you'll cheat God out of the purpose that He made you for. So what are your high places today? He calls them here, my high places. God personalizes your life. And you and I are encountering different things. You're going to encounter different things than me. And some of you in this room have never encountered situations that are going to be devastating. You have to make a decision now what you're going to do. Are you going to walk those high places? God will enable you to walk those high places. You say, does that mean I can just settle down and be at ease? No. How do you prepare for a climb? If you're smart, you start training. How do you prepare for devastating things that can happen? The Word of God. There's no better way to prepare than the Word of God. Let me read this. These are some of the last words that my wife wrote on her birthday, just after her, uh, some weeks after her brain surgery. She was a woman that used to get up every morning and read the Bible. And that was a habit that we had started 40 years before. She wrote this on the... uh, we have a, a website for our son, and this is one of the updates she wrote. She said, It still sounds strange to my ears to say that on Mother's Day, just three weeks ago, the doctors discovered that I had a malignant brain tumor the size of a lemon. It sounds even stranger to say that I've had brain surgery, and I'm now residing temporarily at a nursing and rehab center where I'm having to learn to walk again. Very hard work, believe me. During this overwhelmingly difficult desert in our lives, I can honestly say that every day, God's word, which I've carefully tucked away in my soul for decades, feeds me fresh with life-giving nourishment. And then on her last birthday, she wrote, I'm asking God to let my life be a fragrant offering to bring him glory. There's no room for bitterness when you know that God is sovereignly directing every detail of your life and he invites you to rest under the shadow of his wings until the disaster has passed that's walking that's enabling god for you to walk when difficulties faced are you prepared have you even begun climbing the mountain do you know the lord jesus christ is your savior have you ever submitted yourself to him and thank him for dying on the cross for your sins if you haven't then you haven't even begun the climb but if you're climbing if you're following the lord jesus christ my challenge to you this morning is that you're made for the mountains You're made to keep climbing. Fill your soul and your spirit with the word of God and prepare yourself for what lies ahead. And God is faithful and he will enable you to walk wherever he leads you. Let's pray. Life is such a mystery, Lord. Frankly, some of it we don't particularly like. We don't understand. But we thank you that you see all things And as the old saying goes, it's very trite and very true. We don't know who holds the future. You hold the future. Father God, may we continue to trust you, to learn to walk, that our feeble arms, weak knees might be strengthened, and we might become more and more people of the word, so that we may walk in a manner worthy of your high calling. In Jesus' name, amen.